Good morning. Anyway, it's good to see all of you this morning. It's good to be here at camp meeting. Camp meeting is special. Doesn't matter where the camp meeting is. It's always special. Well, this morning we are going to study a topic that I consider to be absolutely vital to the subsistence of our own personal lives as well as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Before we study this topic, metamorphosis, we want to have a word of prayer, so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for the wonderful spirit that we've felt here at camp meeting. What a blessing it is for your people to come together to sing praises to your name, to have corporate prayer. And Lord, to open your word and freely study and assimilate the message you have for us. What a joyous privilege this is. We know that, that it's going to come to an end sooner rather than later, so help us to enjoy these times of fellowship. We ask that as we open your word that your spirit will be with us through the ministry of the angels to guide our thoughts. Give us understanding, keep us awake and alert, and Lord, plant your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin by reading a statement that was written by Ellen White approximately 130 years ago. It's found in Review and Herald, March 22, 1887. March 22, 1887, Review and Herald. It's also quoted in other uh, books, compilations, uh, but um, I went to the original source in Review and Herald. There she wrote, a revival of true godliness. Now, if there's true godliness, there also must be what? A counterfeit, right? The devil has a counterfeit for everything that God has true. So, a revival of true godliness... Among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. That's powerful. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. And then she finishes the statement by saying, To seek this, that is a revival of true godliness, is or should be our first work. So our first work is to seek a revival of true godliness among God's people. Now there's a second statement where she amplifies what she means by true godliness. This, was a, this one is found in the Review and Herald, February 25, 1902. Uh, this was written approximately 115 years ago. And uh, here she's going to speak about revival, but she's going to mention another word as well. Uh, this is a little bit longer statement. This is how it reads. A revival and a reformation must take place under the ministration of the Holy Spirit. And then she's going to explain what revival and what reformation are. First of all, she's going to talk about 
uh, revival and then reformation. She continues writing, Revival and reformation are two different things. They're different, but they are linked. They're connected. One does not exist without the other, but they can be distinguished. So she says revival and reformation are two different things. And then she defines revival. Revival signifies, a. she's going to use three phrases now to explain what revival is. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of the mind and heart, a resurrection from spiritual death. Three ways of saying the same thing. It signifies renewal of spiritual life, quickening of the powers of the mind and heart. Number three, a resurrection from spiritual death. That's revival. Then she defines reformation. Reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in ideas and theories. That's on the level of thinking, isn't it? In other words, it means a change where? In our thinking. Once again, she says reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in ideas and theories. That happens in the mind. But then she explains of habits and practices. That's conduct or behavior. So reformation means a way, a change in our way of thinking and a change in our way of acting, behavior. Then she continues writing, Reformation will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it is connected with the revival of the Spirit. Revival and reformation are to do their appointed work, and in doing this work, they must blend. So they have to go together. Now, revival without reformation is not genuine revival. Reformation without revival is not genuine reformation. Revival without reformation is emotionalism. And reformation without revival is legalism. Let me put it differently. Reformation with re without revival is like a dead person acting as if he were alive. And revival without reformation is like a living per person acting as if he were dead. So revival always leads to reformation. True revival. And that's what the church needs most of anything. Is a true revival of godliness. In other words, when there is revival in the life, when there is a resurrection from spiritual death, our way of thinking and our way of acting will change. The danger is to try to make a change without revival. And that is legalism. The other danger is to say that we have revival and there's no change in the life. There has to be both. Notice Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. This is referring to revival that leads to reformation. It says there in this text, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should what? Walk in newness of life. By the way, when the Bible speaks of the word walk, in a figurative sense, not physical walking with our legs, but when the Bible talks about walking in a spiritual sense, it has to do with conduct or behavior. The Bible says that we need to walk even as Jesus walked. It's not talking about using our legs. It's talking about the fact that we should behave as Jesus behaved. Our conduct should be like the conduct of Jesus. This is the reason why Ellen White, and we're going to focus primarily on Reformation, revival that leads to Reformation. In the book, The Great Controversy, page 462, she wrote, There is no evidence of genuine repentance unless it works Reformation. In other words, repentance is never true unless it works Reformation. And then in this same chapter, it's called Modern Revivals, by the way, the chapter in Great Controversy. You need to read that chapter because it speaks about genuine and counterfeit revivals in Great Controversy. Modern Revivals. Uh, the quotation that I just read, there is no evidence of genuine repentance unless it works Reformation, is from that chapter. At the end of our talk today, we're going to refer to a couple of other statements from that same chapter. She wrote also on page 462, the same chapter, She's talking about people who have experienced revival and the change in their lives. She wrote, The things they once hated, they now loved. And the things they once loved, they hated. The proud and self-assertive became meek and lowly of heart. The vain and supercilious became serious and unobtrusive. The profane became reverent. The drunken, sober. And the profligate, pure. The vain fashions of the world were laid aside. So basically, true revival leads to a change in the life. The danger is to try and get a change in our lives without revival. And that's the problem that Jesus faced while he was on this earth with the, with the Jews and particularly with the Jewish leaders. They were very moral people. They talked about the need to live moral lives. But it wasn't because it came from inside. It was because of legalism. They wanted to do it themselves. They wanted a corpse to behave as a living person, which is an impossibility. So the question is, how is it that we can understand this issue of revival leading to reformation? How does revival and reformation take place? I want to invite you to go with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. And we're going to read verses 18 and 19. Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19. Here Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai, and he makes a special request of God. Exodus 33, verse 18. And he said, 
I beseech thee. I like that word beseech. Doesn't it sound pretty? We don't use that word much anymore. It's a good King James word. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Moses says, I want to see your glory. And then God responds in in an interesting way. We would expect God to show him a radiant light, you know, his glory. That's the way we think of glory. But notice what God showed him in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. By the way, goodness, graciousness, and mercy are character qualities. In other words, what God is showing Moses, as Moses is at the top of the mount, is a reflection of his character. Go with me to the next chapter, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Uh, Here we're going to find, once again, an explanation of what it means for the Lord to pass before Moses. Because it says that that the Lord passed before Moses. And he showed him his graciousness, his goodness, and his mercy. Now that thought is going to be amplified in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Notice all of the character qualities that are mentioned here. God is merciful, He's gracious, He's long-suffering, He's abundant in goodness and truth, He keeps mercy for thousands, He forgives iniquity. And then there's a little quality that uh, we don't like to talk about very much, and that is that He also is a just God and He will not clear the guilty. That is also a character quality of God. So what God shows Moses is His character. That is God's glory. Now the New Testament picks up on this, on this particular experience. You know, there's a verse that we've read many, many times. Sometimes we ignore the context of where this verse comes from. I'm referring to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. I know that we've read this verse many times and... Probably we can recite it from memory. If you read the previous verses, it's talking about the experience of Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. It's referring to what we just read from Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. What happened with Moses when Moses came down from the mountain? His face was what? Was shining. Where did the glory on the face of Moses come from? It came from the fact that he was in communion with God. In other words, God's glory rubs off when you spend time with him. On the mountain, so to speak. The face becomes radiant. So Moses comes down and the glory of the Lord is shining in his face. 
You know, it kind of makes me think about what Jesus said. He said, I am the light of the world. But he also said, you are the light of the world. Now, wait a minute. How can he be the light of the world? And how can we be the light of the world? It's very simple. Jesus is the sun and we are moons. The sun has its own light, original light. It does not receive the light from anywhere. Obviously, I know that ultimately God made the sun, okay? But I'm talking about now the sun has its own source of light. Does the moon have its own source of light? No. What happens? The moon receives the light of the sun, and then the moon shines to the earth. So Jesus is the sun of righteousness. We are moons, and when we are in connection with the sun, the result is that we reflect his light. That's why it's true that Jesus is the light of the world, but it's also true that we are the light of the world because we receive the rays from the sun, from Jesus Christ. That's what happened with Moses. He was in so close communion with God that his face shone with the glory of God. So perhaps the secret to living a Christian life, a Christ-like life, a life of Christian conduct, is to be in communion with Christ. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Now Ellen White is going to, uh, the Bible, and we're going to notice Ellen White in a moment, uh, shows how this experience of Moses applies to us. Here the Apostle Paul writes, But we all, with unveiled face, because Israel told Moses, we don't like that glory, you know, cover your, cover your face, so we can't see the glory. See, they loved Moses, but they hated the glory. The whole point of the Apostle Paul is that Israel was legalistic. Because they wanted all the law of Moses, all the laws of Moses they wanted, but they didn't want the glory, they didn't want Jesus. Legalism. But Moses was in communion with God and, his, and the light shone on his face. And so it says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding, as in a mirror, what? The glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? His character. Beholding the glory of the Lord, that is his character. What happens? Our being what? Our being changed is the way that some versions read. Another way, another version reads, we are being transformed. Into what? The same image of whom? Of the Lord. We are being, no, that's a process. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It's a process. From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, let me tell you something about that little word, changed. The word changed there is the Greek word metamorpho'o. What word do we get in English from metamorpho'o? Metamorphosis. Interesting. You know, the word metamorphosis comes from two Greek words, meta, which is a preposition, and morpheo means to form. 
So literally, it means transform. The, the preposition would be trans, and the noun would be form. Transform. The word that is used in Greek is the word metamorpheo, metamorphosis. And so you'll notice in this verse that beholding the glory of the Lord, a metamorphosis takes place in the person who is beholding. Now let's talk a little bit about metamorphosis. What is metamorphosis? When I was a kid, I grew up in Venezuela. That's the reason I speak Spanish. My, my parents went uh, to South America when I was four. I came back to the U.S. when I was 14. And uh, my hobby when I was in primary school was to catch butterflies. And I had a, a, a magnificent butterfly collection. I became a very good amateur entomologist. Uh, Wisconsin Academy still has uh, the collections that I left there when I graduated in 1968. It's a long time ago. You know, the antennae have fallen off and there's, you know, the legs, they're supposed to be perfect in the collection, but in the course of time, you know, they dry up and, and they don't look the same as, as when you put them in the collection. But anyway, I was a butterfly collector. And so many times I was able to observe uh, the transformation process of a butterfly, the metamorphosis. You know, basically, and I'm sure you know this, a butterfly is not born a butterfly. A butterfly actually has two births. The first birth is that a little caterpillar is born. Then the little caterpillar begins to eat from the leaves where the eggs were laid. And the little caterpillar, as he eats, becomes a bigger caterpillar. Still a caterpillar. And then it becomes larger. And when it reaches its full maturity, then something amazing happens with that caterpillar. With the first birth. The caterpillar begins burying itself in a chrysalis or in a cocoon. Literally, it weaves itself into a cocoon. It attaches itself to a wall or maybe to a tree, and uh, it weaves a cocoon, and it's buried inside the cocoon. And inside that cocoon, something amazing happens. A miracle. You know, science hasn't been even able fully to explain the process that takes place. They know it takes place. But how does the transformation take place is very difficult to explain. Because what happens in the cocoon is a metamorphosis. The caterpillar, by a miraculous process, is transformed or goes through a metamorphosis and is transformed into a beautiful butterfly. When the cocoon breaks open, after several days, you know it starts shaking violently and the cocoon breaks and out comes 
not immediately a beautiful butterfly because the butterfly comes out and his wings are all shriveled up and then the butterfly starts shaking like that so that the wings extend. And then when the wings are fully extended, then this beautiful butterfly flies off into the sky. An amazing transformation. Let me ask you something. Does the name of the creature change? Of course it does. It was called caterpillar, now it's called butterfly. <laughs> does it change the places it hangs out? Yes. Does it change what it eats? Yes. Everything with the caterpillar and the butterfly is totally different. Totally new. It's basically a new creation. It was born once a caterpillar and then it was born a butterfly by a miraculous transformation, by a miracle of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 makes the application to us. Here the Apostle Paul tells us, those individuals who have received Jesus, who have been born again, who have resurrected from the dead, who have experienced revival, the Apostle Paul explains, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become what? Have become new. Amazing. Let me ask you, did the butterfly become a butterfly because it made up its mind it was going to be a butterfly? said, I'm going to be a butterfly whether it kills me. No. It was by a miracle of God. By something natural that God does. You know, you, can, you cannot explain metamorphosis, but you can see the results of metamorphosis. It's kind of like what Jesus said to uh, Nicodemus. He said, you, you can't see the wind, but you can see the impact that is caused by the wind. So the way in which you see the transformation in the life of a person is by their conduct or by their behavior. Totally new, totally different. Eat different. Now they're called Christian. Hang out in different places. Have a different attitude. Kind, loving. An amazing transformation has taken place. This does not come because of you make up your mind you're going to do it, but by a miracle of God. Ellen White describes the discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus was, do you, would you say that he was quite a moral person? Do you think Nicodemus was a tithe payer? Oh, yeah. Do you think he ate pork? No. Did he keep the Sabbath? Did he fast twice a week? Oh yeah, very moral. But was his morality something natural that came from the heart or was something imposed? It was imposed. See, the, the, the caterpillar does not become a butterfly because the caterpillar makes an effort to become a butterfly. It's because of a miracle of God that the transformation takes place. Desire of Ages, page 172. Ellen White wrote, in the context of Nicodemus, who thought that he could be good by his own efforts, 
rather than by God performing a miracle in his life, wrote this. He who is trying to reach heaven by his own works in keeping the law is attempting an impossibility. I'm going to read that again. He who is trying to reach heaven by his own works in keeping the law is attempting an impossibility. There is no safety for one who has merely a legal religion, a form of godliness. It's legalism. And then she says this, The Christian's life is not a modification or improvement of the old. You hear people all the time saying, well, I'm going to improve, I'm going to get better. She says, no. The Christian's life is not a modification or an improvement of the old, but a transformation of nature. That's metamorphosis. A radical change. And then she writes, there is a death to self and sin. Just like the caterpillar dies in there and is transformed into a butterfly. There is a death to self and sin and a new life altogether. This change can be brought about only by the effectual working of the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it's a process. The metamorphosis from a caterpillar to a butterfly takes several days. It's a process of transformation. The Apostle Paul said that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from glory to glory. In other words, there's a growth every day in our life. Now I want to share with you another experience that I had when I was collecting butterflies. Because it's one thing to be, to be born again, to resurrect from spiritual death, and to abide in Christ, and to behold Christ, and to be transformed from glory to glory by beholding Christ. That's one thing, and it's a different thing to, after you've been born again, after you've resurrected from spiritual death, to let your guard down and no longer abide in Christ. When I was a butterfly collector, my parents would go to a national park in Venezuela um, where there were these beautiful butterflies. It was kind of um, maybe 2,000 feet uh, altitude, and there was a river running through there with lots of beautiful vegetation, tropical vegetation. They had uh, just so many beautiful butterflies, tropical butterflies there. And um, so they would take me there to catch butterflies. I remember the first time that I went to that national park. I had my net, butterfly net. I had um, my uh, jar. You know, the jar had uh, some cotton in the bottom. It had some little pieces of, of rubber on top of that, and then a piece of cardboard with a hole in the middle, you know, so that the, the butterflies would not touch the poison that you put in there. Name of the poison, carbon tetrachloride. Deadly. You know, the, you put the butterfly in there, and within just a few seconds, psst, butterfly was dead. 
And uh, so I had my uh, mounting boards and I had my net and I had my uh, jar with carbon tetrachloride and I was intent on going and, and getting butterflies. And I went in and I saw this beautiful blue butterfly flying through the air. The name of it is Morpho. And I went after that butterfly with my net. And uh, these butterflies are very interesting because they, they fly up and down. They don't fly straight. They go up and then they go down. Very difficult to catch. And so I was running through this forest and I was, uh, you know, trying to catch this butterfly. I was tripping on stones and bumping into bushes and trying to catch him. He got away. And I noticed that the park ranger was standing there with a smile on his face. Uh, watching me try to catch this butterfly. And he said to me, um, why are you trying to kill yourself by uh, trying to catch that butterfly? I said, well, I'm a butterfly collector. He says, there's an easier way. I said, really? How? He says, those butterflies love bananas. The riper, the better. So all you have to do is throw, put a banana on the ground and leave for about a half an hour, and when you come back, you'll find butterflies on the banana. All you have to do is put the net over them. I said, wow, that's interesting. So my parents took me down to the supermarket. We bought a, as ripe a banana as we could find. Went back up to the park, threw the banana on the ground, left. Half an hour later, there were five of them sitting on the banana. Piece of cake. Put the net over them. Had five of them in one shot without hardly any effort. Wow. I added lots of them to my collection. Several years later, I went to the same park with my net, my jar, and all my paraphernalia and went in through the gate and uh, the park ranger was there. He says, where are you going with, uh, with that butterfly net? I said, well, I'm going to catch butterflies. He said, no, you're not. I said, what do you mean, no, you're not? I've caught butterflies here before. He said, yes, but uh, since then, this place has been declared a national refuge. So you can't catch any butterflies in here. Oh, I was devastated. But then a thought came to my mind. What if I throw the banana outside the fence? <laughs> so what I did was I, I, I took the banana, went outside the gate, put the banana on the ground, and lo and behold, any butterfly that had been born again that risked going over the fence and sitting on the banana became my victim. You see, just because we've been born again, just because our life was transformed, unless we continue beholding the glory of the Lord, we will fall into the hands of the great catcher, the great enemy, who is Satan. The only way that we can be, sure, be secure is by abiding in Christ, remaining in Him. It's not enough to be born again. It's not enough to start the process of beholding Jesus. It is a constant process where we are changed from glory to glory. Ellen White wrote in the book Sons and Daughters of God, actually it's a devotional book, she didn't write the book, but this quotation is from her pen. 
Sons and Daughters of God, page 337. She explains what it means to behold Jesus and how we are transformed. She wrote, by beholding Christ, by talking of Him, by beholding the loveliness of His character, we become changed. Once again, by beholding Christ, by talking of Him, and by beholding the loveliness of His character, we become changed. And then she explains, changed from glory to glory. And then she asks, and what is glory? Her answer is, character. And he becomes changed from character to character. Thus we see that there is a work of, listen carefully, there is a work of purification that goes on by beholding Jesus. There is the secret to a victorious Christian life. That's why Ellen White wrote that we should spend a thoughtful hour each day in the contemplation of the life of Christ, particularly the closing scenes. You see, when we behold Jesus, we see two things. Number one, we see one who is absolutely perfect and beautiful. And when we see that Jesus who is perfect and beautiful, we are led to say, miserable man or woman that I am. We see the contrast between his holiness and my sinfulness. And the purpose of that is so that I feel totally and completely unworthy. So I behold the beauty and the holiness of Jesus. And that leads me to say, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then I behold Jesus in Gethsemane. The one who is holy and beautiful and perfect, sweating great drops of blood. Crying out in agony to his father, Father, if this cup of your wrath can pass from me, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Contemplating Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we say to Jesus, You're altogether lovely, perfect, righteous. Why is this happening to you? And the answer comes back, Because of your sins. Your sins did that to me. And when I see what sin does to Jesus, I don't want to hurt Jesus. It's better to overcome sin than to hurt Jesus. So it's through beholding the beautiful perfection of Jesus that makes me feel my unworthiness and then coming to Gethsemane in the cross and seeing that in spite of my sinfulness, Jesus was willing to give his life for me that works in my life a transformation a change, a metamorphosis, if you please. By beholding, we are changed. And by the way, how do we behold Jesus these days? You know, there's this new idea that beholding Jesus is having some mystical connection with Jesus, where you simply empty your brain, and then Jesus is going to talk to you. 
That is totally anti-biblical. The Bible doesn't say empty your mind so you can hear God's voice. It says fill your mind with scripture so you can hear his voice. God doesn't want us to be airheads. That's not going to help us overcome sin. We have to engage our mind in, in going to Scripture. We contemplate Jesus through reading Scripture. Because Jesus isn't here personally today. He's not going to reveal himself to us in some mystical connection. No, it's through prayer and contemplating Jesus in Scripture primarily the closing scenes of his life, that we are changed or transformed into his image. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. See, it's by getting the word in that the life is transformed. Trouble is, we're beholding everything except Jesus. We behold everything except him, and therefore we are what we watch. And what we listen to. It's a law of nature. We are what we eat through our mouth. And we are what we eat through our, through our eyes and our ears, primarily, spiritually speaking. By beholding, we're changed. You know, I had a student when I was teaching in Medellin, Colombia, where the Heartland president is from. And uh, this student was an exceptional student, the best one that I ever had. I taught for six years. I had hundreds of students go through my classes. This one was special. He would come to class and he would sit in the front seat, one of the front seats, with Bible and with his notebook and his pen. And from the time the class started till the class ended, he would take notes, profuse notes, of everything that I was saying. Never got distracted, never talked with the person next to him, always engaged. I had him for three years in multiple classes. I left Medellin and uh, came to the United States and several years later I was preaching at a camp meeting and um, a lady was in the audience, and after I preached my sermon, she came up to me, and she says, do you know so-and-so? And mentioned this, this young man's name. I said, oh yeah, I know him very, very well. She looked at me and she said, you preach just like he does. <laughs> of course, I smiled. And I said, uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I had, uh, Ho his name is Jorge Rico. He teaches at Southwestern Adventist University now. And um, I said, you know, I had him in class for three years, and uh, that might help explain the reason why. And then recently, this is probably less than a year ago, we brought him to our studio in Fresno to do a series on Revelation. And uh, it was in the daytime, so we didn't have an audience, so I said, I'll be his audience. So I sat down to, uh, at his feet. And as I watched him, I said, man, it's like looking in the mirror. <laughs> you know, the intonation of his voice, the movement of his arms, the way he moves from one side to the other. Say, like, wow, this is amazing. Why? 
Because by beholding, we are changed. It's a small illustration of, of, of reality. What we watch makes us what we are. We eat physically through our mouth, but we eat spiritually through our eyes and through our ears, primarily. And so that's why we need to guard what we allow to enter into our brain. We must make sure that we're beholding Jesus. You know, I'm sure that you're all acquainted with uh, Mark Finley. You know, I had never met his wife until uh, two or three years before my retirement. Uh, she was invited to a workers' meeting in Central California Conference. I was still a worker, so I went to that workers' meeting. I was amazed. It was like watching Mark Finley. The intonation of her voice, the way she, you know, the way that she moved her body. I said, man! And so, I, and so I said, man, is it because she's copying Mark or Mark is copying her? It's an amazing similarity. Why? Because beholding, we are changed. And that applies spiritually. You know, we can go home from this camp meeting and uh, we can continue life as usual and not have victory over sin. Or we can decide at this camp meeting that we're going to get serious with the Lord and we are going to dedicate our time, at least that one hour every morning, to contemplate the perfection of Jesus, and the great, great sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. If we go home and we're the same, you know, next year we'll come to camp meeting for another shot of adrenaline. But God doesn't want us to live on shots of adrenaline. God wants us to live a steady Christian life. And that is done by constantly and consistently beholding Jesus. Let me give you another illustration from my teaching days. When I taught, I had some students that were on certain days difficult. One day I remember um, in my devotional in the morning, I had been meditating upon the life of Christ, particularly the verse where um, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so I went to class, and uh, there were two students sitting in the back of the room, talking and laughing while I was teaching. And I would look at them, and then they would be quiet. And then I would start teaching again, and once again they would start snickering and talking, and I would look at them again, you know, and as, uh, every time that it happened, the blood was rising to my head. I was going to let them have it. I was just waiting for the right moment. And finally, I reached the boiling point. <laughs> and I was about to rebuke them publicly, make a spectacle of them. And when I was about to say something, it was like I heard a voice. I know it wasn't a voice. It was what the Lord planted in my brain. I heard distinctly, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Where did that come from? From what I put in in the morning. The Lord knew I was going to need it. And you would be amazed. All the blood went to the right places. <laughs> and after class, I took them aside very nicely, talked to them and said, you know, this is something that is not acceptable. And we ended up friends. What we behold affects our behavior. That's the bottom line. It transforms and changes us. The more we behold Jesus, the more we become like Jesus. You cannot program revival. You know what the re revivals these days major in? They, they major in excitement. Very little emphasis on scripture. Very little emphasis on the objective. The emphasis is on the subjective. The emotions, the feelings. Now we talked about genuine revival. Genuine revival comes when we commit our lives to Jesus and on an ongoing basis we behold Jesus and we're changed. That's not primarily what the Christian world is interested in today. And even in many Adventist circles. Let me read you from that chapter, Modern Revivals. You ought to read that chapter. It's amazing. Ellen White here comments about false revivals. Great Controversy 463. She says, popular revivals are too often carried by appeals to the imagination, by exciting the emotions, by gratifying the love for what is new and startling. People want to be excited. She writes, thus converts, thus gained, have little desire to listen to Bible truth. Little interest in the testimony of prophets and apostles. Little interest in the Bible, in other words. Do you know that all true revivals came as a result of an intense desire to study scripture? She continues writing, unless a religious service has something of a sensational character, it has no attractions for them. A message which appeals to the unimpassioned reason. Do you understand what unimpassioned reason means? It means that you don't involve your emotions and your feelings in the process. A message that appeals to unimpassioned reason awakens no response. The plain warnings of God's word relating directly to their eternal interests are unheeded. Then she writes what happens in the churches. What, what are churches substituting in place of true revival and true reformation? She wrote, the power of godliness has well nigh departed from many of the churches. Then she, she says, picnics, church theatricals, church fairs, fine houses, personal display, have banished thoughts of God. Lands and goods and worldly occupations engross the mind and things of eternal interest receive hardly a passing note. Then she writes about a great revival that's going to come. 
and how the devil is going to want to counterfeit that revival. In Great Controversy, same chapter, she writes, Notwithstanding the widespread, decl widespread declension of faith and piety, there are true followers of Christ in these churches. She's talking about the Protestant churches. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. Are we longing for that time? The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. At that time, many will separate themselves from these churches in which the love of, the, of this world has supplanted the love for God and His Word. Many, both of ministers and people, will gladly accept those great truths. Notice what they're accepting. What are they accepting? Emotions, feeling, jumping up in church and screaming. No, not that. Many, both of ministers and people, will gladly accept those great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed at this time to prepare a people for the Lord's second coming. Does the devil know that this revival's coming? Yeah, he's going to try and counterfeit it. And I believe he is counterfeiting it. On page 464, she writes, The enemy of souls desires to hinder this work. And before the time for such a movement shall come, before the genuine revival, she's saying, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. In those churches which he can bring under his deceptive power, he will make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out. There will be manifest what is thought to be great religious interest. Multitudes will exalt that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. Bottom line, folks, you cannot program revival. Some people say, well, you know, in order to have revival, we need to have a contemporary music. And we need to have more excitement in our worship service. That's not going to bring revival. It's an artificial way of making it appear like there's revival. But revival comes from the heart when the person is changed. And as a result, the lives of the members of the church are changed. Let me share with you, in closing, another story. This is an experience that I had. There's a young man uh, whom I met when I just arrived at the Fresno Central Church where I spent 20 years of ministry. Um, actually, his wife was a member, and his wife said, you know, I'd like you to come and meet my husband and have Bible studies with him. And I said, sure, I'd be glad to. And so I went. He wasn't too excited about it. He was uh, a member of the Pentecostal Church. His mom and dad, the whole family, were members of a Pentecostal Church there in town. And so I, I started studying. He wasn't real excited at first, but then as we went along, he got more and more excited. And so we finished the first series of Bible studies, 20 of them. And uh, I said, well, you know, this is, uh, this is the end of the Bible studies. Um, I said, you know, now's decision time. 
would you like to be baptized and join the Seventh-day Adventist Church? He says, oh, I have no doubts whatsoever that what you're teaching is true. He says, it's biblical. I hadn't seen the Sabbath before from the Bible, the way you presented it. He says, there's no doubt whatsoever. I said, so you're going to decide to join the church? He says, well, not now. He says, I need to study more. He said, you know, my mom and dad, they're strong influence. I don't know how they're going to react to this. He says, can we have another series of Bible studies? I said, yeah. So I did another full series of Bible studies with him. And at the end, the same process. He said, not yet. Now, the interesting thing is, even though Benny to this day has not decided to be baptized, he's still, you know... He'll come to my office now. The last time he came with his father, his father was opposed. He thought that, uh, you know, his son was kind of loony in having these Bible studies. But uh, his, his mom died. Benny's mom died. And, you know, when somebody dies, the other person suddenly is open where they weren't open before. And so the father came. He says, you know, I want to know what happened to my wife. So, and Benny had told him about the state of the dead, that she was resting. But he wanted to hear it from me. So we sat down. We had a Bible study on the state of the dead with, with Benny and with his father. And so every time I see, see Benny, I see Benny, you know, you need to make a decision. He said, I know I have to. I know I have to. I said, knowing it is not enough. You've got to take the step. No more excuses. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is because Benny started attending church on a regular basis. And one day he came out. And I was greeting everybody that came out, and he, he took me aside and he said, You know, you know why I like to come to this church? I said, Well, uh, no, I don't know. You want to tell me why you come to this church? He says, You know, I like coming to this church more than going to my own church. In fact, at that point, he had been very sporadic in attending his own church. He says, The reason why is when I come to church, I hear a message that lodges in my brain. And I have it there throughout the course of the whole week. It says, but I go to my church, and we jump in the aisles. We say amen and hallelujah. We shout in the Lord. Some people speak in a language that no one understands. And we get all excited, he says. And 20 minutes later, when I go out of church, I don't have anything left. It's like throwing kerosene on a fire goes whoosh, and then it's gone. That's the type of modern revivals. Revival without a change in the life. Because we're trying to program revival instead of leading people to behold and contemplate Jesus Christ, His beauty, His perfection of character as found in the Bible, His great sacrifice in Gethsemane and the cross for our sins, which breaks our heart and makes us more like Jesus. I want to end by reading Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews chapter 12. Here you have the whole secret. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. He's just described, the Apostle Paul has just described all of the great heroes of faith. And then he says this, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us 
and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. In other words, lay aside sin and run the race. Now, how do you run the race? How do you overcome sin? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And looking at what aspect of Jesus? It says, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. Do you know what the joy that was set before him? Seeing all of the redeemed saved in the kingdom. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 3 says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. There you have beholding Jesus is the way in which we are changed. So I pray to the Lord that when we go home from this camp meeting, our habits will be different. Let's not be a caterpillar, but let's be a beautiful butterfly created by a miracle of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you for the miracle, the transformation that takes place when we commit our lives to Jesus and when we behold him as our Savior and as our Lord. Oh Lord, help us to focus our minds on your beloved Son so that our lives can be changed into his same image so that we can reach what Ellen White explains a reflection, a perfect reflection of the image of Jesus in our lives. Give us your character through the power of the Holy Spirit. Make us more kind and loving and good, a blessing to others, that they might see that there is transforming power in Jesus. We thank you, Father, for having been with us and for answering our prayer. For we ask it in the precious name of your dear Son, Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.